Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Hey, Iron Radio listeners. This is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. All good things must come to an end, and after a dozen years and 640 weekly episodes, my involvement with the show will be complete for the foreseeable future. Have no fear, though. Coach Stevens and Dr. Nelson will continue with a modernized version of the show pretty much everywhere that matters, on iTunes, on the web in general, with a new website, and on YouTube. The legacy material from version 1.0 of the show will remain up, and it will contain links you can follow to all the new stuff. Thanks. It's been an honor. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. Uh, I'm an exercise physiologist and a nutrition scientist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Phil Stevens. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. I run strength field bunch of other stuff just got back from montana so spent i think we hit up five national parks in eight days so it was good that's I'm amazing tired, get back nice montana's beautiful oh, oh was, yeah. yeah got to see some good people so sean and gabby had me up there i was able to sign my name right next to mike's on the iron oh, radio nice. banner so on is next yeah yep out of space for you. I'll catch a flight out there just just to sign it. <laughs> sign a banner, yeah. <laughs> so. Nice. This is Dr. Mike G. Nelson, Associate Professor of the Kerrigan Institute, creator of the Flex Diet CERT and the PhysFlex CERT. And, yeah, still just um, hanging out at home, getting ready to teach uh, advanced athlete monitoring for Rocky Mountain University, which starts up in a couple days. Ooh. Ooh. I uh, have a textbook that's yeah, I probably have it here somewhere. Basically, it's it's called Advanced Biochemical Monitoring of the Elite Athlete or something. It's pretty cool. It's oh, pretty cool. Who's that by? Uh, I've got. I I'm looking. <laughs> I'm scanning my bookshelf. <laughs> um, let's see. Biochemical Monitoring of Sport Training by Viru V I R U. I'm just looking across my bookshelf here. Oh, okay. It's Human Kinetics. Anyway. Oh, okay. Might nice. be cool. To look at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. We have one little piece of news that I thought this would be fun. I haven't mentioned this to Phil or Mike, uh, so but it's it's the kind of thing that I I'm very curious to what these guys are going to say, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about our favorite um, powerlifting, you know, and bodybuilding videos and TV shows of of uh, uh, bygone days. And then after the break, uh, we're going to just go over to Phil's Q&A in Montana because there's like an hour of it, right, Phil? Yep, yep, about an hour of it, just short of an hour. So. Excellent. 
So I promised that in the show notes a week or two ago, so we will uh, do that. Anyway, let's get to this piece of news here. Strength and Muscle Sport News. I got this. Let's see. This is from Esposito and colleagues from Advances in Nutrition. Uh, It's actually from January of this year. Um, It's still 2021. And it's one of those things I had set aside and I wanted to just bring up because it just seems like the kind of science that's interesting. But... Uh, It's the Association Between Personality Traits and Dietary Choices, a Systematic Review. So it says personality may influence the type of diet and consequently the prognosis of medical or psychiatric conditions. So, of course, their purpose was to go do a big search. Uh, A total of 1,856 articles were screened and 24 were finally selected. Exclusion criteria consisted of studies on animals or children. Uh, so again, not not including those. Um, studies on eating disorders, they kept those out. Uh, types of diet not clearly associated with health outcomes. And then basically marketing studies. Uh, what did they find? Uh, unfavorable personality traits such as neuroticism and uh, alexithymia, uh, the ability not to identify certain emotions, right? So think like low EQ, like uh, people just, they can't really identify how they're feeling. They were associated with unhealthy diet habits, such as low consumption of fruit and veg and increased consumption of sugar and saturated fat. So they concluded that personality does seem to play a role in food selection. And future research should clarify how personality can affect uh, diet. And I think about this, like um, in dietetics, you know, you might work with someone and ask them about their food, not just intolerances or allergies, but even, you know, uh, likes and dislikes, because you don't want to set someone up on a diet with a certain nutrient profile that they won't eat, they don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, I thought I would ask you guys, Phil, what do you think about personality and diet choices? Have you ever come across this? It, it's sort of an interesting idea that you're going to be geared toward choosing certain foods because of, I don't know, maybe you're aggressive go-getter, or maybe you're more reserved or introverted, or... Um, anything like that, even in yourself, personality Mm. and food? Man, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's more personality or just like the whole nature versus nurture thing. Like generally what I see is people really lean towards foods that were like comfort foods they grew up with. So depending on the area and region, who they were raised by, it's kind of what they tend to go to. Mm -hmm. Um, Like my wife was primarily raised over in, japan at an air force base and like so she's good with eating rice every meal i'm like man i need some potatoes <laughs> you know? okay right yeah so, yeah and things like that so and how much of that is just personality or how she was raised so i don't know i never gave it much thought though i guess right so. comfort foods that's a good angle on a lot of this stuff i know it's not quite the same thing as a, a specific personality <laughs> trait but yeah. um we used to have that discussion in the classroom a lot and i would encourage listeners to think about what foods are comfort foods or discomfort foods for you it's a it's mm-hmm. a fun little self-reflection um you know, usual foods that come up are things like mac and cheese or sometimes people will say ice cream or fresh bread, you know, for like comfort types of foods. Uh, and then discomfort foods, sometimes you had a bad experience with like I despise uh, and a lot of people might be like, Lonnie, how can you say that? You're a nutritionist. But uh, like fresh sliced tomatoes 
ugh, like seedy, <laughs> bitter oh, kind of. Ugh, no way. I mean, I'll eat tomato products, but and it's yeah. it's partly because yeah, it's the discomfort food for me because like when I was a kid, my mom would have me. I had to finish my salad before I went out to play, uh, and I'd have my friends come in. I wanted to go play Nerf football, you know, this kind of stuff that kids don't do as much anymore. Um, and I would, I, I would like throw um, slices of tomato at them like a frisbee so they could eat it. Like throw it across the table. Like look, mom's gone. <laughs> and okay. to this day, I just don't, I just don't like that stuff. Or cucumber slices. Oh, I can't do it. Cannot do it. <laughs> um, you might think, oh, what do, what do you eat? Listen, there are, there's hundreds of vegetable choices. <laughs> so those are two that aren't going to happen uh, with me. But uh, what about you, Mike? Um, personalities and and food it's it's an interesting connection they're trying to make here yeah i thought that was an interesting study my thought was are they maybe trying biochemically to get more of a quote reaction from their body and they're seeking foods that they think will get more of a reaction i don't know um that's pretty interesting i haven't really noticed too much of a difference other than you know, some people who are kind of all or nothing tend to, let's say, have interesting dietary patterns <laughs> without, you know, sometimes it gets to be a little bit pathological that they may need a re- referral out, not most of the time, but sometimes. Yeah. And, yeah, I've just seen people on both ends of the spectrum. I've seen people where it's like, hey, how about you eat one vegetable today? That'd be novel, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, some other people on the other end of the spectrum, which I kind of call the almost like the porcelain doll diet, where they're afraid of eating anything that's not, you know, organic and grown in their backyard or, or whatever. You know, I think you can become a little bit too neurotic on, on either end. And that's not to say that people need to eat unhealthy or anything like that. But again, it depends on, you know, what is their goals? Like so we've talked about a bunch of times, if you're really trying to push calories and you're trying to get, say, 4,000 calories a day, you know, eating all whole nutritious food, you're just eating all the time. You know, it's almost impossible. So those are more of the things that I, I generally see, per se. Right. Um it, it, I mean, I guess it makes sense to me that if you can't identify or describe your emotions, then you've lost all – I mean, if you can't even identify how a food's making you feel, like the comfort thing that Phil was talking about kind of goes out the window. You don't, If you don't have any description and you can't you know, um, parse out the emotion related to the food – I mean, I remember there was a book years ago that Dr. Phil tried to put out – what he did put out, which was something about emotional eating and how all overeating was emotional eating. And I disagreed with the concept. I think a lot of people are damn hungry <laughs> sometimes, mm-hmm. and it's not all depression eating and mindless eating. And I think I, I got the vibe at least that that's what that book was about. Oh, God, that was more than 10 years ago. Um. But yeah, but this kind of connects with emotional eating. It makes me wonder, yeah, are they uh, – I don't know if this is a sort of a tangential to what you were saying, Mike, but is there a neurotransmitter or is there something? Why are they going after the extra sugar you know, or right. the extra saturated fat? Is there you – know, they're trying to almost correct some type of brain chemistry uh, by doing that. I, I, the, the analogy I would have with that would be something like pica, you know, people who mm. cr- crave mm-hmm. non-food items and – 
their literature actually kind of goes back and forth about whether they're trying are they replacing a deficiency or not you know like some stuff is like no it's not really about they're not necessarily deficient in anything it, this is just psychological and other studies suggest no no some at least some subpopulations of these groups might be low in iron or something which is why they're eating like dirt and clay you know but anyway i mean uh insofar as some of these unfavorable personality traits uh have altered brain chemistry maybe yeah maybe they're eating in a certain way to to deal with that i suppose in our sports some of the cliches would be like you know the really aggressive uh big dudes are just eating lots of steak you know um make it as raw as possible bro you know stuff like that <laughs> I, I had a cabbie once who actually said something like that he's like uh shave its horns off and slap it on a plate or something i'm like okay but <laughs> <laughs> whatever with some clients i it sounds obvious but a lot of times people have never been taught any of this stuff i got it from a buddy of mine frankie years ago that they may only be looking for a biochemical solution via food to change their state. Like they kind of know that you can do it biomechanically, like go move, go walk, do some exercise, do some recreation, or like a biopsych intervention, maybe distraction. If you like playing, I don't know, crossword puzzles or something, do that or read or do something else that their default, and I think like Phil was saying too, is kind of maybe how they grew up is because we tend to use food for this all the time in the U.S., is that they're only practice at seeking a biochemical solution of eating cake or whatever. But sometimes it just takes education to say, yeah, you know, maybe you weren't so hungry. Maybe you're just trying to change your state, and this is just the thing that you go to all the time. So let's try something different. Let's try maybe go for a walk. And then if you still want a piece of cake after a half hour walk, then have a piece of cake or, you know, do something else and see if that resolves the, the thing that you're internally trying to resolve. And a lot of times they realize, oh, I was kind of only seeking this one solution all the time because that's all I ever really had practice with. Yeah. I read a paper once that men tend to lean into coffee even when they're stressed, uh, whereas women do do that less so because gender differences mm. in food choices are interesting too. And I can't reference that. My God, that was ages ago. Um, but I do that. Like if I yeah, I, if I if I feel fatigued or I'm under stress, I feel something in the back of my mind. It's very habitual, like you're saying, Mike. I'm like, I, yeah. I, I, I go make some coffee. If there's no coffee in the pot, I'll tear open like a packet of instant coffee and uh, – Almost as if, I mean, I do think you get a little bit of, um, you know, good feeling. You know, you're sipping the coffee. There's sort of that slight euphoria. It does help you focus. I mean, you know, that sort of thing. But um, it's probably not the best approach a lot of times. It's like, you know, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. What am I doing? I should go walk around the building once or something, like to your point, you know, instead of just reaching for the coffee pot. but. Um, especially yeah. these these guys, it says over anxious. I'm just looking up general definitions on Google. Neurotic, over anxious. So you can almost see why they'd be eating uh, sugar or some saturated fat foods. Many of those are delicious comfort type foods. You know, cake or pie or something like that. I don't know. Um, anyway. Yeah. I mean, I relate to the coffee thing. I've had it kind of been much better the last probably three, four, maybe five years of changing that, especially after doing my PhD, because my default 
mode of operandi for a good portion of my life was, well, just drink more coffee, work harder, listen to louder music, <laughs> and just get your shit done. You know, and that <laughs> yep. that works good to a, a point where it doesn't work so good anymore. <laughs> you're right. Um, and if that's your solution to everything, then you're going to constantly keep finding more work even once you've finished the stuff you need to get done. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that was a big realization for me that, oh, yeah, maybe I should back up and go upstream and be more conscious about, okay, how many projects am I going to take on? You know, how much time do I want? How much income do I need? You know, all those exactly kind of more big life value decisions instead of falling into a pot of coffee every day and trying to get it done. Right. Yeah. And that's, I guess maybe that's what drove me to print off this paper about personality traits because that was always my solution pour more coffee on it or like you're saying blast more metal at it i mean like just drive yeah. drive Fire harder, harder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah um okay the other thing that i just wanted to touch on before we go to break is to revisit some some of our favorite videos in powerlifting and bodybuilding um the reason this came up is because i was talking to with a coworker. And he's uh, actually a few years older than I am, and we are kind of reminiscing about the bodybuilders of the 80s. And um, when I when I lifted that evening, I actually – I was just kind of piecemealing some lifting at home. But um, I had on uh, – what did I put on? The Comeback, which is one of my favorite uh, videos. Yeah, a lot of people default to pumping iron, and that's good too in bodybuilding. But The Comeback is about Arnold's uh, – 1980 I think it was comeback after like a five-year hiatus and it's really good Tom Platt is in it like um it's one of his first big appearances so he doesn't make the final cut because I felt like he was kind of robbed and maybe paying his dues but then you know how the YouTube algorithm will start pushing other similar stuff at you so then um the next night what popped up was the 1983 Mr. Olympia where Samir Benut won, but I mean, Frank Zane was on stage. It was the first time Lee Haney, I think, placed in the top six. I hope some of our listeners remember Lee Haney's name. I mean, he was Mr. Olympia eight times. Now we tend to think of Ronnie Coleman almost as a default, I think, instead of Lee Haney. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the physiques were so different. Like Muhammad Makawi from Egypt, he's short, but real thick, uh, but also, you know, very graceful. And Frank Zane had that classic look. And then there was like Bertle Fox, who was just huge. And a lot yeah. of people thought he got robbed because, I mean, his chest was just crazy. I think he's a British guy. Al Beckles was still on stage, and he was one of my childhood heroes. Al Beckles was like 55 or something and still and on the stage. Yeah, I remember some articles in the muscle magazines. They were calling him the Methuselah of bodybuilding, you know, because he just kept going. Um, and let's face it, when those guys at that age, you know, they're in, 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 at that level, they're enhanced. Of course they are. But even so, I mean, how he managed not to tear every muscle is almost amazing to me, mm. you know, after how many decades of training. Robbie Robinson wasn't on stage, I don't think, but he competed when he was old. Um, yeah, so there's a lot. there was a lot of, like, blast from the past. Some of those German guys that I think are gone now, um, like Jessup Wilcaus and uh, – uh, what's his name? Uh, Ralph Muller, I think, was one real t- like taller guy, almost Arnold esque physique. But it really struck me how different they looked from each other. The only thing I don't like is if you go look for the 1983 Mister Olympia online, everybody. Um, I, maybe it's the YouTube limitation on copyright music or whatever you know, um, intellectual property around music because a lot of times they dub over stupid music. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> and I hate that because I, if you watch Frank Zane do opposing routine, I know that he very intentionally chose the music and don't just put some ridiculous modern techno music over top of Frank Zane. It's stupid. Uh, it sounds so weird. <laughs> yep. Yep. And I get it that they have to do that, you know, I suppose, but, um, and, and anyway, and for, and I, I'll, I'll make one more comment and then I'll ask you guys. The other thing was, and Phil and I were just talking about this before I hit the record button, but you can actually get on YouTube and pull up. If you type in body shaping, Rick Valente, you can find that old ESPN show. And Rick Valente is the kind of guy who, um, you know, high rep, get a pump on camera kind of guy. And he would usually train with like Kiana. And there was a couple of different uh, female lifters, pretty, you know, hardcore. Um, but if you search this, some of these are really bad, like VHS uh, dubs, you know, or copies. And But it's interesting to look at this 1990 stuff and how bodybuilding was, it was on ESPN, you know, I mean, there was that Gila Jankowitz or whatever. He did like a fitness show, and he was he was pretty buff. Uh, but Rick Valente is just straight up a bodybuilder, and it was interesting. It was that mainstream because obviously that show is long, long gone, and I don't think there's any equivalent like that now. You know, so uh, yeah. what do you think, Phil? Like TV, movies, even videos? Well, like we talked about before the show. I mean, one you can't. Like if you want something to get you fired up, <clears throat> watch Captain Kirk Kirkowski squatting thousand for a double. Yeah, I mean that's a good one, <laughs> a good short one. And he's like, you know, takes it for two, and then he's like, just let me hold it. I want to hold it. You know, he stands there for a while, and he's like, okay, take it. <laughs> right, wants to own it. I mean, arguably not the best move he ever did in his career because he didn't match that in the meat that was coming up right after that. Um, but you know, he's still thousand. Lucky he was on camera. He did thousand for two. Yeah. You know? Insane. So, um, as a coach, I'd been like, "You dumbass!" You know, you should that for the meat. You're right. You blew but, it. You know, uh, and I don't know. I, latest, I mean, West Side versus World. I think anybody who hasn't watched it should. Yeah. There were a lot of people that were surprised by that show, by that movie. I wasn't. I mean, if you recognize like where Louis coming from, uh, which is very much like Eastern Bloc training and the way that they handle athletes you know you're you're a hunk of meat and your sole job is to get world records and if you can't do that i'm done with you <laughs> you know and i'm moving on to the next one you have this staple of athletes and uh and it that's kind of the message you got out of it brutal you know, was like, you know it was just it was a meat factory for for records so yeah um and that's all you were it was like once you weren't useful in that get out of the way there's somebody else coming up you know <laughs> So, and he was honest about that. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty brutal in that way, but uh, that's the way things went. I mean, it was it was records or nothing. So, and that's the same way a lot of countries are. I mean, right now we're watching the Olympics, and you know, you look at China and everything else, and a lot of those countries, are like from birth, you're you're going to be a minor, you're an Olympian <laughs> from like age <laughs> six, and that's right. your job. Yeah, you know, and you know, we people wonder why. USA got beaten weightlifting so much. I was like the pool of athletes, like literally like Abigail's way of doing it. It was like, okay, whoever's still alive in four years is going to the Olympics for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and you're probably going to be really strong because you lived through this training. Uh, you know, we, we, we're not afforded that here. So, uh, 
No, but so I mean that that would be a good one. I think to point everybody to. Right, I know there was was it the uh, Wide World of Sports or something? Um, I can't remember what network that was on. Where, it was on ABC, where, I think, wasn't it? With like Kaz doing strongman stuff and uh, yes, just super motivating man to watch that guy. Oh yeah, just insane. Yeah, um, yeah ABC's Wide World of Sports. Here it is. Oh, this is yeah. 1974. Wow. So I was just a little boy. Um, <laughs> but that's that, that's some cool stuff I might point people to. Oh, and you know what? That, let me just interject this. The most absurd, in a good way, I think, the pinnacle of bodybuilding in my mind, and I know there's been some real freaks since then, but go uh, do a search uh, for Dorian Yates' German Grand Prix on, yes, on YouTube. I have that on my list. It is insane. And you know why it's so insane? Like you can actually find um, even Google images of comparing him with Phil Heath and other people back to back. And the huge difference is Dorian was similarly sized, uh, but dry and separated. Like on his back stuff, you could see the origins of his traps and his Terry's major from the lats. And it didn't, he wasn't just a balloon animal that looked soft and bulbous. He was you know, the Christmas tree in his lower back, he was ridiculous. He was both huge and separated and dry and ripped. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I I don't, I I don't see it getting any better than that (laughs) in my old, old guy opinion. But Mike, you said that was on your list. Yeah. And I think he's even said that he doesn't feel like he ever really matched that level later in his career. He said he went through phases of actually being, bigger but he didn't like the look as much so he actually purposely went down and obviously kind of ended early due to injuries um but yeah i remember the first time i saw that video i was like what the hell is that (laughs) yep yep what else though you got anything else um i agree with phil like westside versus the world i thought was i thought it was actually really well done i know some people didn't like it but I thought the interviews with the athletes and having Louie on there and it, I wasn't shocked by it. It wasn't anything that I was like, Oh my gosh, what is that? But I think as a, a well done look that you could have someone who's maybe not super steeped in powerlifting and strength sports kind of watch and it's still entertaining. I thought that was uh, really well done. Yeah. Uh, I had the, you know, world's strongest man, the early stuff. I mean, Anything with Kaz in it was just... I remember as a kid watching that for the first time. I think it was the one where they are carrying the refrigerators. I was like, what <laughs> the hell is this? And then yeah, I yeah. think the one where they were doing the deadlifts with like the coin boxes in it. And they show the, the shot of Kaz from the back. And you're like, is there like three people in there? Like, what the hell happened? <laughs> yeah, um, phenomenal. So, and that was interesting because I had never seen anything like that. And I think similarly, I think it was also on ABC or ABC, the Worldwide of Sports had, honestly, it was something similar, and I'm blanking on the name, where they had uh, NFL, like, superstars would compete in different sports. And I don't know if it was, like, a strongman or they just had a variety of stuff, but I remember watching that just, you know, just getting to see freak athletes do crazy stuff. And it was the first time I realized, I'm like, oh, these guys are doing things different than playing football, but they're all just really good athletes at a lot of stuff. 
you know so the whole specialization is obviously true to some degree at the high level but you know just watching a lot of those athletes do other stuff was really crazy yeah i remember we we had uh, was it marty gallagher i think he was talking about big man sports and how strong man and some of this stuff it's like an alternative like usually if you're a really big dude you know you think about football linemen or there are certain things certain sports you think about that marty was calling big man sports i don't don't remember what episode that was it was a while ago um on iron radio but and how kind of to what you're saying and and yet you can go this completely different direction you know and be ridiculous i mean brian shaw and people of that size when they say 400 is the new 300 talking about body weight what you know Mm -hmm. absolute madness I'm sorry though. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you're good. And to watch like people that big move with load, and you know, like some people in the NFL to see, like if you've ever met them in person, like it's it's hard to appreciate how large these humans are <laughs> until you stand next to them and watch them move. You're like, that's that's insane. That huge dude moved that fast. That's that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was good. And then in terms of documentaries, it's not. A happy one, but it's interesting, is the one Icarus uh, that Brian Fogle did about kind of the Russian uh, doping scandals that happened. Okay. Yeah. I just thought it was really, really well done and pretty much has direct data on the program that the Russians used for doping for decades upon decades upon decades. And the way it's set up, the storyline and everything is really interesting. So even if you're not really into that, it was done in a way that was, uh, you can sit down and watch and you're also entertained at the same time, where sometimes documentaries, who knows what their agenda really was, and it's really not exciting to watch. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And then the last one I had is just a one-off video, is uh, Benedict Magnuson, who pulled uh, 1015 on a deadlift mm-hmm. at the Ronnie Coleman Classic. And he did it raw, like from 2011. And just, it's a like 45 second video, but just the build up to him. And just, I always just loved watching him lift because he's pacing back and around. It looks like he's just going to runs up and attacks the bar lift and makes it look pretty easy. Like he's deadlifting over a thousand pounds and mm-hmm. it didn't even look that hard. You're just like, what the hell? Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Display of power. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned dark. I'll, I'll add one thing too. This is obviously it's, it's fictitious, but I think it did a really good job at showing the raw side of you know, um, sort of the bodybuilding crowd. Not necessarily just bodybuilding, but Mickey Rourke and the wrestler. Did you guys see that? The wrestler. Mm. Um, I haven't actually. He's like living in a trailer, you know, and he's got to get his GH and all this kind of stuff. I mean, <laughs> it's it's pretty dark, you know, and, and he wants to. He's desperate to like reclaim the the glory days kind of thing, but you know it's classic like huge you know um, juicer kind of guy um, trying to survive and make a living with his muscles, so so to speak. Um, it's it's pretty grim. In fact, you know what I I got a copy. Oh my god! About two years ago, I was going to give away in an Iron Radio giveaway. So um, somebody makes it wants a wants to request that on Facebook. Uh, go ahead. And I'll just send it to you. How about that? It's still shrink wrapped, <laughs> but it's it's a little dark. I mean, it's a little dark. But watching, sort of to your point, you both you guys, I think about like the 
the meat conveyor, you know, where, because you saw that in bodybuilding too, like the best athletes, they feel so special. They feel like they're on top of the world, but the older you get, you realize how fleeting that is. And they're just being used, you know, in a lot of ways, because there's always going to be the next young, hungry guy who's escalated his polypharmacy even more, (laughs) you know, or is just naturally gifted or whatever. Um, yeah, and, and there is that sort of grim side to it, I suppose, as well. Uh, anyway, okay, good stuff. All right, we will uh, we'll cut it there. We're going to go to Phil's Q and A uh, session in Montana there, and um, we'll see you next week, I guess. Yep, see you next week. Yes. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. Over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. For this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Okay, everybody, we are here in Belgrade, Montana. We're getting ready to do a uh, Q&A at a seminar at the Meat Locker. Woo! Gabby's all fired up over here. <laughs> she was uh, doing some Olympic weightlifting today. So, Like I said, we're just going to do some questions, and I'll do some answers for the show. So who wants to go first? So with powerlifting training... Do you think that there is a genetic ceiling you can hit as far as building contractile tissue? With powerlifting training, is there a genetic ceiling you can hit as far as building contractile tissue? Yeah, I think there's a ceiling anybody can hit. Um, you think it differs you know, from hypertrophy training? No. I think there's just a genetic ceiling that anybody can hit. And the biggest difference, I think, in between... Uh, bodybuilders and powerlifters is neural. The difference being, I don't think you could be a great, I don't think you could successfully build as much tissue as a bodybuilder can and be a powerlifter. Like, I don't think Ronnie Coleman would be a great powerlifter because he was so fucking big, he's not mobile enough. You still have to have a little bit of mobility. That said, um, Every powerlifter I know wants... I've never known a powerlifter that got too fucking big. Um, because we purposely want to build tissue and things like that to... Like I was talking about yesterday, we bind up ourselves. So making making it to depth on the lifts are, is harder. So there's tons of tension built up. Like I at, at one point in my... Before I started powerlifting, I was able to drop in the splits. I purposely bound myself like I can't get close to the fucking splits now. And that's all been on purpose. So, and that's one of those things like we talked about that, you know, accepting the negatives of what you want to do. And I realized that I need to 
you know, I was okay with losing some mobility and some other things in my life to do that. But no, I mean, back to the question. Uh, yeah, there's a genetic ceiling, but I don't think it's different. I mean, you're just going to, at some point, you're going to just, the muscle building is going to slow down. So if not, I mean, you know, if somebody ever finds a way to like cancel out the myostatin gene and shit like that, we'll all be badass. You know? <laughs> but that's hadn't happened yet. There's been lots of failed attempts. But <laughs> so you can go um, again. As far as weak points go, do you think that there is a line where you can overtrain said weak points or imbalances and accidentally cause more imbalances and weak points? You always will. The the beautiful thing about training is that the minute you fix one weak point, you have a new one. There is always ways to get better. Like there's never, I've written about this, like perfection's a fallacy. We, I always strive for perfection, but I love the fact that I can't do it. And I love that same fact in oil painting and art. Like the minute I got done with the painting and I'm sure you guys do this. We got a bunch of tattoo artists in here for the, uh, for the listeners. Um, the minute I got done with a piece, I tore it apart and saw where I could do better. And, you know, there's there's going to be no point in time that you, you don't have a weak point. Um, early on in your career, you are the weak point. Um, I think a lot of people give too much attention to weak point training early on, and that's like Windler. Windler's big. He does just – he's not a believer in weak points, um, which I don't go that far. I think there is – like I have weaknesses. Um, me as a whole, I'm not weak. Uh, there's a lot of the, the general population is just fucking weak and they don't need to worry about weak point training and stuff like that. They just need to worry about training. But uh, yeah, you'll always have a weak point and you're going to create new ones by fixing one. Like the minute your triceps, my triceps are my weak point in my bench. Okay. So you fucking hammer the shit out of those. And now your back is weak, you know, but I mean, I view that as a positive instead of a negative. It gives me always something to work on. So so speaking of weak points, you know, one of the things you were talking about is a lot of times you got to feel those lats engage. And yep. you're saying the more you do it, once you get bigger lats, you'll feel it. Yes. Until they get big enough, what should you be really looking for in the interim before they get big? I mean, because you still got to try to try. So how do you, you know, know you're doing it right if you can't feel them actually? So the question is, you know, what do you do for an example? Like we talked about yesterday, your lats, and sometimes it's hard to get people to engage their lats enough because they just don't have them. Um, what do we do in the midterm until they get to that point? Um, a shitload of lat work, number one, um, so they can get to that point. That's number one thing is just so they can get there. Other than that, it's just teaching them uh, scapular control. A lot of people don't have scapular control. And that's just like, like I'm not a big mind in the muscle type of guy like bodybuilders are. I'm more of a, like, if I straighten, if you take your leg and bend it and straighten it, I don't care if you feel it, your fucking quad's working. If you bend your arm, your bicep's working. Um, I'm not big and, like, we just know what's happening. It, you can't bend your arm without your bicep working, so don't fucking worry about it. Just do the work, and if you get stronger at that, guess what? Your bicep's stronger. It has to be. Um, so we just, I, I look at the movements and make sure they're, they look correct. Um, is our big thing. So just cue them in. The, like, this is wrong. Pull your shoulders back. Um, and eventually that's going to click. Um, sometimes they like, uh, a lot of times it's neural. 
So like even if you have tiny little lats, you just don't know how to fire them. It's not like nobody has no lats. We just have to teach you how to fire them. And sometimes that can just be through simple moves and and then thinking about it. Like what's going on back there? Do I feel anything? Um, and that comes in time just like we were talking about when I'm squatting. I have a vocabulary with my body. Most people don't have a vocabulary with their body. I know what every single weight's supposed to feel like on the way up. Most people don't. That takes years. And just being conscious in your training. And uh, conscious in training and then unconscious in competition. You know, there's lots of lots and lots of thinking in training. But you have to reach the point to shut that off to be efficient. So to where it's just mindless. So on that same point with bodybuilding, if you're having trouble targeting a muscle and understanding how to contract said muscle, mm-hmm. a lot of times they will do static holds or like you're posing and you're just holding a static hold. Mm-hmm. And then the more you do that, the more you can learn to activate a specific s- set of muscle groups. Okay. Um, do you think that could benefit for someone trying to engage their lats on a bench press during powerlifting? Not necessarily being, you know, fancy pants posing in the mirrors, but doing some form of a lat spread in order to create that mind muscle connection, even though potentially, or we do simple things like, uh, okay, sorry. Um, people aren't going to hear that question. Do I think static holds or something like that, that they do like posing in bodybuilding, they do that to get people to contract their, their muscles and feel them. Do I think that can help in, uh, strength sports to get people to like engage their lats and things? Yeah. I mean, we'll do things like, uh, hang from a chin-up bar and just, again, scapular retraction. Just get them to, a lot of people, they just never, the reason they can't do it is they've never done that move. Like, there's not many times in your life where you're like, oh, I need to flex my lats. It, they just don't do it. So, yeah, we'll do things like that, scapular retraction and things like that that just get them to actually work that thing and wake it up. Or a normal one is like, we call it glute amnesia. It's just people don't use their asses anymore. And, like, teaching them how to flex their ass <laughs> and get that thing to wake the fuck up. Um but again, you can also get to it, and a lot of these things you can get to it just by doing the move. As fast as I can get you doing the move, number one is make sure we're not going to hurt anything. Uh, that comes before efficiency. Efficiency comes later. If I can get you just you doing the move in a safe manner, a, something that's potentially not going to hurt you, that other shit's just going to happen. And then I don't have to hold off. I think there's too many people that hold off of, of training because... Oh, my lats don't fire, so I just won't do it. No, let's just fucking do it as long as it's safe. Even though you're you're 70% efficient, we're getting a lot more done than we are if we just fucking spend an hour and a half like trying to activate your lats. Um, and that's the same thing as like so many people, like things like FMS are taken way out of focus. Like I personally have sat down with Gray Cook and talked to him and like FMS is built to fail. Like, you can't fucking pass the thing. But people get the FMS done, like, I'm fucking horrible, I just quit. And Or then they'll spend, instead of spending an hour and a half training, let's say you have 90 minutes to do your training, they'll spend three quarters of that doing bullshit to fix their, they're wasting their time. Like, fucking train. Number one thing is just get stronger. And you're going to fix a lot of shit through that and then spend 15 minutes doing that other shit. And, like, fixing things like that is more of about consistency than it is, doing it once for a long time like do something every day if you have if you have something we need to fix your shoulder hurts this and that there's a mobility issue doing it for two hours twice a week 
is much less effective than doing it for 15 minutes every day. You know, it's just we need those small doses of it. And it's it's more fun to train. <laughs> so. So, so when you're, obviously when you're training, you're constantly trying to improve the lift and become more efficient mm-hmm. in the movement. At what point does your training kind of change when you have enough time under, like how do you, what's a good indication when you're moving from beginner to intermediate? And you need to change things up a little bit. Obviously, you're still working on your form and your efficiency. But, I mean, at what point do you start to change things up, add more rest time or back off or um, change your, your overall strategy, realizing you're going from one training age to another? Uh, I'll just simplify the question for people. It's at what point do you know you're going from one training age to another, as in from like beginner to intermediate, intermediate to advanced. Um, the easiest way to answer this is if it, the biggest mistake people do is they're getting progress and they change shit. Like you'll know when you need to change shit cause you're not going to progress anymore. Like people change shit just because they're bored and elite athletics. I'm sorry. You better get used to being bored. You're going to do the same shit for a long time. And the, the time to change is when that stops reaping benefits. Like if I, at this point, like if I gain five pounds in a training cycle, I'm fucking making progress. Um, and that's one thing to realize from like beginner to intermediate. That's the first thing that happens. Like I get a new person that's like, 50 pounds a month. That's fucking, it's, it's good that happens because that's what starts the fire. Like if it didn't, if immediately, like you gained five pounds a month on your lifts, you'd fucking quit. Like what gets people addicted is they, I went from a 225 squat to a 315 squat in a month and a half. Fucking, I'm going to be giant by fucking in a year and a half. That's what gets them hooked. What gets a lot of people to quit is after those newbie gains and they, uh, it slows down to, 10 pounds a month, 15 pounds a month. It's uh, celebrating those. Like if you're getting 15 pounds a month still, fuck, don't change a thing. Keep doing it. You know? So the time to change is when that just like, you'll, you'll kind of know it. Like I, like when I change the two days a week, it's because the current training had the opposite of progress. It had negative returns. Like I started going backwards doing what I did before because I was just overtraining and I was doing too much. My body, the system could not recover. So the fault that most people do is well, I need to do more shit um, when they actually need to do less shit. You know, you'll reach a point where at the beginning I can throw tons of shit at you and you'll just recover from it. Like I could wreck a new person and two days later they come back and they're fucking ready to go and they do more than they did last time. Um, if I take an, an advanced person and wreck them, it's going to take a while. Like there's a reason we take a week off after a meet. Like a lot of new people can do a meet and they're like, let's go next day. You know, I'm walking funny for a week <laughs> and I gladly take a week off. So basically to answer your question, I mean, when what you're currently doing and have been doing quit working, uh, change it up. And the first thing I'd try is doing less. And the opposite of what most people do is they just keep stacking more and more and more and more on the fire. And uh, you just can't burn it. So unless you're hardly doing anything anyways. I mean, 
And that's like we talked about yesterday. It was a. Uh, it goes back to that. I don't think you can skip that beginning stage where we do a lot of dumb shit. Because it, that does a few things. It, it you have to learn your limits. You don't know one hundred percent until you reach one hundred percent. You got to almost fucking crash and burn before you even know what you're capable of. And it's safer to build that early on when your squat max is 135 than it is to like, oh, I'm going to find out what 100% is when you have the capability to squat 900. Because um, you need to reserve that. Like, you're strong enough now to blow shit up. Um, like, I know, like, mentally now, I'm stronger than, much stronger than I was when I started. I'm strong mentally to the point that I can, I can destroy this tissue. Like, I can push through things until I literally explode. Um, and new people aren't that way. Normally, new people are... They don't know the difference between strain and pain. Um, they think something hard is... The minute it gets hard, they think that's max. It's like, no, you're not even trying yet. You need to mentally push past that. And most people fail mentally before they, they fail physically. That your, your body has a lot more in it than you think it does. But then you reach this dangerous point where your mind can be stronger than your body. And so. I have a question. Yes. So um, with that Olympic powerlifting that we were just doing right now, yep. um, I'm excited because I've always thought that I was too short to be a human. Okay. But it's good that I, I can do those things. How do I um, keep getting better? Like how fast do I add weight? Do I just do push press for a while and add weight to that? Do I do the whole combo, uh, all of it at once to, and add weight slowly to that or uh, assisted work or how do I, how do I get better? Okay. To add some context to this, Gabby just got to try weightlifting for the first time today and she's immediately good at it because she's genetically built to be good at it. Uh, <laughs> and she's happy because she's a short person and now she found out what she can do. Um, <laughs> Uh, and how do does she now, after having pretty much four hours of doing it, how do we get better at it? Um, with Olympic weightlifting, 100%, and I know I said this in, in the gym, like the fault that the USA had was they were all about technique and not about strength. Right now, 100% of your attention on the Olympic lifts needs to be on technique only. We don't need to worry about what's on the bar. Your strength training will come from shit you already do. Squatting, pressing, blah, blah, blah. Anything on the, the snatch and clean jerk would be just technique. Nail and technique. They all should be, like, you shouldn't be missing lifts at this point. You'll go up. I mean, you'll add weight to the bar just because you do it easy. Um, add a little more. But, I mean, the difference, one of the big differences in Olympic weightlifting and powerlifting is I never want my lifters to miss in in powerlifting, like I just don't believe in missed reps. I think it's bad for you. In Olympic weightlifting, you are going to miss. I don't care who you are. Like the Olympians miss. It's just a sport where you're going to fucking miss because it's a lot technical. Um, I would keep things, I would just keep working those clean liftoffs, clean pulls, clean, break it down into chunks um, and practice those. And that's those are lifts you can do every day. Like you can do... Every day, it's a great warm-up. Like, I use Olympic lifts for warm-ups because it is full body. Like, there's nothing. If you do a clean and jerk, you just warmed up everything. There's nothing you missed. So you could go in there and spend 15 minutes doing light clean and jerks, another day 15 minutes doing light snatches. Um, the problem is 
I'm not going to say never that it's impossible because like Tommy Kono trained by himself in his basement and made it to the Olympics and won it. But he's special and most people aren't special. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're all special little snowflakes, but we're not that fucking special. And if you were, if you were that special, you'd already know, to, know it at your age. So <laughs> um, what I'm getting at is most people need, 99% of the time you need eyes on you when you're doing Olympic lifts. Because the problem is it is so technical, you could start doing liftoffs and you're doing them wrong, and you do 100 reps of those, and they're 100 reps wrong, you just memorize how to do it wrong really well. And now when I come back, you've done it wrong so many times that it's really hard to get you to not do it wrong, okay. if that makes sense. Yeah. So um, it's, that's like I really, it, I'm much, I'd much rather have a lifter come in that has never done a clean and jerk than one that has been coached badly. Because it's easier to teach somebody from a clear slate than it is to unteach bad movement patterns. Okay. It's it's much easier to learn a correct movement pattern from scratch than it is to unengrain something you've done wrong forever. Okay. So, um, just take your time. Like you can video things. You can have Sean watch. Um, just make sure we're hitting that position in front and things like that. Okay. Uh, and then use all. You, save the hard work for your easy moves. Because, like, getting your squat up is going to raise your clean and jerk and snatch up. Getting your deadlift up is going to raise that up. Stuff like that. Okay. So. Would it be beneficial to do overhead squats? Yes. And if you're not doing a lot of the Olympic lifts, yep. just to get that part? Yeah, that's definitely one. That's, like, breaking that part. That's that part of the lift. So, yeah. I mean, getting com- a big part of the snatch is getting comfortable with overhead. So, we'll do overhead squats and some of the other lifts that we didn't even go into, drop snatches and things like that. Um, which I can show you out in the gym again. So, so do the stuff you know you can do right, basically, rather than the whole compound lift itself. Yeah, and I would, I would honestly like at the beginning we break those lifts down because it's a lot easier. Like do clean liftoffs. That's where I would start. Clean liftoffs until you can't do it wrong, and then move to something. Move to the next part. Like until you just you've practiced it so many times, you have no choice but to do it right. Because that's what you know, you know. Strive for that perfection, and then, okay, now I can do the pull part, <clears throat> you know. So now, when you progress that way, should you do your off the floor, perfect it, and then should you start there every time, and then? Oh yeah, then you'll start at and move clean left off into a pull, okay. um, or you might do like one clean left off, two pulls. So you're getting twice the dose of the new thing um, and one dose of the first thing. And that's where we're able to do, like I was talking about earlier, I had them doing complexes. So, sorry, I get ahead of myself. He asked me if, if, so after she perfected the clean left-offs, do you then move to like a clean pull from the floor or do we just do the clean pull from the hang? You would do the whole thing. But uh, like we did in the gym with complexes, most of my complexes are... There is a lack of boredom aspect to them, but the most, like the complexes will generally change from lifter to lifter based on their weakness. Like if her weakness was her pull, then we might do one clean lift off, two pulls, and a power snatch. You know, we're going to put more emphasis on that weak spot, and uh, we're still able to do the whole lift, but we're getting extra work done there. And that's like the same reason for like, I don't have people like do one and a half squats just for fun. 
I, we do one and a half squats because they're weak in the bottom. So we're getting twice as much work in that weak spot and we're still getting the full move in, but uh, we're getting twice as much dose for that weak area. So, um, When it comes to powerlifting training in your main lifts, uh, do you think you should do different type stances and grips in your training or should you just stick with your main like stance or grip for any of the main lifts? In powerlifting, do I think that you should vary your stance or grip in training um, or stick with your main stance? <sighs> yes. To both of them. After, you should stick with your, we'll call it your competition or natural stance, until that is mindless, like we talked about with the clean jerk. Once, it's like I talked about, it, I don't know if I talked to you guys about it, my daughter um, on the right up here, but we talked about somebody in art. And like I always relate stuff back to my art school because that's, uh, it, it just relates well to training and everything else. The biggest problem that I saw in like master school for art was everybody wants to go from gas shop attendant to Picasso and they skip the steps in between. Um, people don't realize that Picasso didn't go abstract until he was, a, he was so good at realism that he was bored. Um, so you need to get to that point with your squat to where you can squat and that's all you know is doing it right and that's mindless. Um, in that stance, in that way, and now we can change it up to get a different stimulus. But when you come back to that regular stance, you can always, boom, you're, you're spot on, and nothing's changed. Um, and like we talked about in the gym, you need to have a routine to do that. Like coming to the way you approach the bar, the way you get under the bar, the way you walk out, the way you squat, it's always the fucking same every time. Until you have that down, you can't change things because you're changing it every time. Um, like my walkout is exactly the same from the bar up to 700 pounds. It's just, and now I know, Hey, maybe I tweak this. Now I can try something, but you need to know the rules before you can break them. Most people want to break the rules way too early because they don't even know the rules yet. So I would train, you know, and that might take years, you know, very well. Good. With the caveat of, hey, I always lean back towards the fun factor. Training has to be fun. Like, if you're to the point you're so fucking bored you're going to quit, we're going to change something so you don't quit. <laughs> you know? I'd rather see you just have fun and train than not train at all because you're so fucking bored. Um, yeah. Uh, back to the question that I asked in my started to ask in the gym mm -hmm. um when you're picking your weights at a meet how do you go about picking your starting your second your third pole okay when i'm picking lifts at a meet how do i go about uh picking that this can be different for me than it is for other people than for my lifters because i give a shit I I care much more about other people's lifts in the meat than I do mine. Like if I bomb the fuck out of meat, I'd blow it off and forget about it and I'd be fine. I can't accept that for one of my lifters. Um so I will I will always personally open with something I know I can hit. 
Like I was jokingly sitting there with you, I, I will open with something that I, if I came down with cancer over the AIDS the day before the meet, I could hit that shit. Um, but uh, in general, with my lifters, I open with something they can triple. Because I know if they can triple it, like the, the only reason they miss it is because they're being a vagina. Like fucking pull your head out of your ass and fucking hit that shit. Um, uh, and I just don't believe in, in like, the only reason you bomb out is you or your coach called a bad fucking lift. They called a bad number. And especially on the squat. Like the squat sets the tempo of the meat. Everybody's so fucking nervous coming out. Once you get that first lift in of the day, your relaxation level goes way the fuck down. Open easy. You can always, like, there's no rule about how far you can jump up. And most people, and this is worse in Olympic weightlifting um, than it is powerlifting, <clears throat> but most people uh, open way too heavy, and they take these small little jumps. Like, there's this weird thing in Olympic weightlifting where it's like, everybody's always taking five kilo jumps or two and a half kilo jumps. And so that fucking opener's hard. And then you're jumping up 10 or 10 or 15 pounds. And, you know, so we do, me and my colleague, uh, Darrell down in who helps run strength yield weightlifting, we do what's called strength yield jumps. And it screws up people in weightlifting because we'll jump 20, 25 kilos. And it's like an unwritten rule that it's always small jumps. So we'll open up and you get this list in Olympic weightlifting where, uh, you know, you, you, you see the flight and you have the numbers listed and by what you called, they think they know where you're going and okay. He's opening at 95. That means he's going to end at 105. We'll open it like 95 and we'll go to 120. And they're like, what the fuck happened? And they're all pissed off. And, uh, because Olympic lifting is different than powerlifting. Like in powerlifting, the flight, uh, essentially stays the same and you can only go up right after your lift. Like you have a minute or whatever to call your next lift. In Olympic weightlifting, I can jump you at any time. So I can really screw up other lifters. Let's say I have, and you can do weird shit. Like if I have one of my national level lifters, I'll bring in three other lifters that aren't even at that level and have them open just under her, even if they can't make that lift, to buy her time. And all of a sudden, let's say Sally is number eight. And then all four of my lifters are before her. She's timing her lit, her warm-ups based on she's number eight and we wait about five minutes and then all four of my lifters jump. <clears throat> hey, Sally, you're up. She's like, oh shit, I had eight more minutes to warm up. No, you don't. You're now, you know, cause all of my people just jumped to screw her up on purpose because my lifter wants to beat her. So there's a cat and mouse coaching game in Olympic weightlifting where you can really screw people up. And we end up doing that with like people plan on, oh, we got her beat. Don't need to worry about her. And then we take this huge fucking jump because we opened easy to get in the meet um, and not bomb out. So it's good to get, just fucking get one on the board. I don't care what it is. Uh, so my, my general recommendation is open super easy with something like you can't miss mentally, especially mentally a, a load that you own and then take a big fucking jump from there. In general, for me, it's always, uh, unless health issues are in the way, like after I was coming back from hip replacement, like that, like my next meet, it'll be, well, depending on this training cycle goes, um, I'll generally open easy, five pound PR for second attempt, shoot for the moon on third. Like, because at this point in my career, I'm not there to do the same thing again. Like when I retire from lifting, it'll probably win when I can't get better. What's the fucking point in keeping going? I've already done it. Why do I want to do less than I've done before? So right now my second attempt is always in a lifetime PR. So 
And then from there, we just fucking, I base it off what that felt like or what my lifters lift looked like. And I call it from there. So, but number one is just open, open easier, even easier than you think you can, because you can always jump big. So. So when you're training, so to change it now, so when you're training and let's say, you know, you're doing your deadlifts and all of a sudden you hit a point and you fail. Mm-hmm. you rest and try again or you're like okay i'm done now i know it's, you know and now let's move on to whatever we're doing next so that's kind of more programming but <clears throat> yeah and we'll get into program so the question is are you talking about like do it again right then no like rest and do it again like should you try again or should you just call it a day okay so you're not like talking about come back two days later and try it again you're no, talking right, about that, that day, day. Yeah, that day. <clears throat> oh okay the question is like let's say you're training you miss a lift should you try it again or just call it a day? Um, that depends on why you failed. Like if you failed because of a, because it was too fucking hard, like literally it was just too fucking heavy. Like you did the lift right and you just poop was about to come out and you couldn't do it. Don't fucking try again. All you're going to do, you start stacking those failures on top of each other. That number's going to start to own you. Um, the more times you fail one load, the more that shit owns you. Um, now if you fucked up like, Oh fuck, I shot my hips. I, you just literally had a technical error and somebody saw it and you felt it. Sure. Try it again. You know, if you, uh, if I don't fuck up, I can get this then try it again. But like my lift yesterday, you know, I went in and for a bigger deadlift and I just felt like I was going to get, I could have probably made that, but I'd have paid for it. It's not worth it. Um, uh, I know not to try it again, but in, it just depends on why you missed it in Olympic weightlifting. Fucking try it again. And you'll probably miss seven more times and then you'll hit it. <laughs> That's just the way that fucking sport is powerlifting different. You know, most of the fails in that are, uh, just load related. Once you're decent in form, like what you guys were doing yesterday, like we did massive form changes on everything. And like he missed, the deadlift numerous times and then we came back and got it and it's just he needed just more learning we went back down and wait and rose back up and that would be a lot of things like if you miss something technically or mental error a lot of times the best thing to do is drop back down and work back up to it um so how much would you drop back down if you were to do that like in that situation <sighs> so i guess if we get we got close to the pr yeah 20 percent, okay. something like that you know, you know, drop back down to something, you know, you'll hit right mm-hmm. and crush that shit and come back up. Like he missed that lift a couple times. And then we went back down, came back up and we went higher than what he missed. <clears throat> you know, so, but I mean, there's, and if it's just, you're not strong enough and it's pretty blatant. And a lot of times what's going to early on, especially like, that's my call with my clients. I can tell if they were trying hard. Like, they don't have the vocabulary with themselves. So, I don't know why I missed it. You're fucking weak. <laughs> and I'll be honest with them. As you get later in your training, you'll kind of know why you missed it. Um, and you can make that call for yourself. But, like, for you guys now, it's you guys should lean on each other hard. Like, bro, you were doing that right. It was just, like, too much. Don't. You're going to hurt yourself um, if you do it wrong. Now, if somebody just... Like their back caves over in the squat on a, like, tell them, try that shit again and fix that. Don't do that again. The reason you missed it was that. 
um, give them one more shot. And if they do that again, then you know, okay, well, they're just fucking weak right there. We need to fix that. So, But again, I, I, along the same question, we'll go ahead and touch on this. Like most people max too often. Like we max enough that I, like, I failed as a coach if my lifters don't hit a new PR when we max out because we do it so seldom. Like a lot of people every two weeks, fucking max out again. Yeah, it's badass. And like, there's a gym I took over the the wrestling coaching for a a local high school, and literally the strength coaches programming for that whole fucking school was eighty percent, ninety percent new max, rinse and repeat all year, and you get no warm ups. They would come in, they'd load the squat bar with one hundred five percent go, and if you miss that lift. If you didn't hit a new PR, you dropped a letter grade. It's like it was an unfucking sustainable programming. Um, and supposedly he learned it from Nebraska, whatever. Um, so, I mean, give yourself a chance to win by stacking a lot of training in between max attempts. Like, you only get so many max attempts in your life. The only time that's different is with new people. Because like today, Abby, Gabby hit like 27 PRs because she's never Olympic weightlifted. So everything we hit today is a PR. So like for her first six months of weightlifting, like we'd be hitting daily PRs. But that's just because she doesn't know how to fucking do it. So every day she's going to get better. You know, it's a new sport to you. It's a new activity. So of course you're just automatically going to get better because you get more familiar with it. So in the beginning with my lifters, it's very much, uh, I'm going to be stacking on load all the time, but it's always going to, we start so low that I can always, I know I can stack more on. Like I start people way below their ability. And I believe in that 100%. It's like start way below your ability so you can run up the hill. So At that point, it's all the confidence. It's just getting... Yeah, it's just getting movement pattern down. It's like it's hard to work on. You can't arguably work on perfecting technique at maximal loads. Doesn't It doesn't work because load shows weakness. Load... Load is what we use to show faults, you know? So why the fuck are we going to just be totally maxing all the time? Um, (laughs) So then with that, when you're training between your max attempts, your competition attempts, do you want to be staying? I mean, and obviously as you get heavier weights, the the percentages are going to change you want to basically be staying somewhere in that upper, you know, 60 to 90% range of, and just doing it perfect every time. I mean, obviously you want to do it perfect every time, but do you want to stay within that range or do you want to constantly wave up toward that 100%? Okay. The question is, do you want to just always stay in between 60 and 90% in training? Um, or do we wave all over the place? Uh, I We generally don't go above 90%. Um, and I don't go much. Well, we'll go down to 50% sometimes. Just depends on, on what we're doing. But uh, especially early on, I think, I think general um, people don't run a program like Windler's or general periodization enough. Uh, where we're just adding like the best thing you can do at the beginning is just like he what he needs to do is put much less than we did on squat and add five pounds a week until you just can't do that <laughs> you know 
and people don't run that long enough. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in general, there's really no reason outside of a, a meet to go above 90% because all you're asking for is to get hurt. Um, and the training effect, like I was telling you about yesterday, most of our actual strength is gained well before our 12 week meet peak cycle. All we're trying to do there, like I, the, I hate clients that I, I've had several to do. I, I don't like them. I say hate them, but, uh, a lot of people hire a coach for a 12 week peaking program and they don't realize that all that that does, all we're doing in that 12 weeks is realizing the strength that you've already gained. If that makes sense. We're just getting you to the point where you can express what you already have. And we'll gain some in there, of course, but most of that comes in, in other times of the year. So, I mean, if you got a coach, you should stick with them for a while, long enough for, for show teeth and, or if in, in your training, uh, <laughs> you got to be patient in for the long haul. I mean, it's going to be, you have to realize this is a year's thing, not a week's or month's thing. So, um, and most of the, most of the strength comes from volume of stuff, especially once you're neurally more efficient, like early on getting into that 80 to 90% range and moving it quickly can add a lot. Uh, but we can get a, around that by doing what I told you guys to yesterday. Always look to kill the bar. You know, always make the bar your bitch. You're, we're always trying to move it fast. So I'm not sure that answered your question. We'll get in more in depth of that programming stuff later. When you're picking a coach or someone to train you, what do you look for? In a personally, what do I look for? What should somebody? Look for? the first thing I would say is who have they helped I don't give a fuck what you say show me show me the results if they can't show you people that they brought to a high level I'm not buying it I don't care what they've done like I don't care like if Ronnie Coleman said like I I would not I don't know who Ronnie Coleman's ever coached or if he has but I wouldn't pick him as a coach until I knew I don't care what the athlete has done most high level a lot of very high-level athletes couldn't coach their way out of a fucking box. You know, that's because most athletes don't give a shit about the coaching. They give a shit about the results. They just do what's written on the paper, and they don't care why it works. They don't care how it works, and that's not their job. Arguably, to be a high-level athlete, you shouldn't care why it fucking works. Because 100% of your attention should be on your training and recovering you and getting ready. Um, not on, why is the program like this? Uh, you're wasting energy on that. Like most Olympians and shit, they, like they all have fucking coaches for a reason. To take that aspect, like you, your system can only handle so much stress. So like it would be an idiotic move for an Olympic weightlifter to take their own training planning on their own because you're just adding more stress. Um, and that's like me as myself. I, I let... People coach me because I want outside eyes on me. Um, the We have a real, it's human instinct or whatever. Uh, we don't see the worst in ourselves. We always look at the best shit. And generally, like, if we leave it up to ourselves, we'll, I like doing that. I'm going to fucking do that. Well, usually what you want to do and what you need to do are two different things. 
So, but uh, how do I pick a coach? I, I'll, number one is I will say, show me. Who have you helped? If you haven't helped anybody, then uh, I'm not picking you. <laughs> show me who you've actually brought to a high level in what I want to do um, type of thing. So that's that's number one. And then if you mesh, like if you don't, if they're just a fucking dick and they have lots of great clients, that's fine. But you're not, you're just going to hate it, you know, so. That's hard, though, because then, okay, how does the coach get in that position? Like if, if people only picked people that had, there'd be like two coaches in the world <laughs> you know? and everybody would be coached by them. And that's where I come back. That's a separate question, but it's like, well, how do you get into coaching then? My suggestion, and everybody hates to hear it, is do it for like 10 years for free. Like, you have no right. You can't take a weekend course and then charge people. It's just against, it should be against the fucking law. Like, I would have felt like shit for doing that. Um, The morals today are gone and ethics. But, uh, like, help people help friends for free. And the friends that are willing and... Be honest with them, like, hey, bro, I haven't done this shit. Can I help you? And I will get experience too. And you're going to help me build my abilities, you know. Or nobody does it like I did anymore. Um, like, I left my hometown at the age of 21 or whatever the fuck it was, and I went, and I personally, I want to learn that. I fucking went there. And I knocked on that goddamn door and said, I'm going to sit, come here and shadow you for three years. And I'm going to learn what you do. I'm going to learn from somebody who's coaching. I want to learn Olympic weightlifting. Okay, I'm going to the dude that's sending people to the fucking Olympics. And I'm going to knock on his door and I'm going to bring him a sandwich. And I'm going to make him let me watch him. Um, <laughs> you know, and, you know, that's the same thing like in Thailand. I went to Thailand. What did I do? I found the Olympic Training Center and I went in there and fucking watched them. And I watched what they do. Uh, I wish there was more of an apprentice program in, in the U.S. And the reason there isn't is because people don't have the balls to ask. Most really high-level coaches, if you call them and ask them if you can come watch them, they would love it. They would open the door and let, yeah, fucking come in, please. Please let me, I mean, like my legacy when I die will be gone with me unless somebody lets me pass the knowledge on to them and keep it. That's the best thing you can do, you know, is keep that lineage going. And that used to exist in the world, even in trades, you know, so... Um, yeah. So kind of on that point of being a coach or in a coaching mindset, if somebody, not necessarily just a, a random dude in the gym, a random girl in the gym, but somebody who's close to you, whether it be family or friends, if they're doing something that you know for a fact is going to hurt them in regards to dieting or training, do you think it is socially acceptable for you without them asking you for your help? Go and tell them that they're doing something wrong. Mm. Mm. And it's a moral <laughs> um, is it like uh, in a commercial gym or whatever? Commercial gym or even if okay. your family member is doing something that's going oh, to God. So the question is, if you, as a coach or a person... You're in a gym or a social setting, it's a family member, friend, or just some Joe Schmo you see in some situation is doing something <laughs> that you know is going to cause them harm. Is it acceptable to tell them? Um, I 
I think it is. I wouldn't. My give a shit meter has gotten really small and it's not worth my time. Um, and uh, would you say there might be some benefit to letting them? If it was a family member, I'd tell them. If it's somebody I cared about, I've gotten to the point where I'm mature enough and old enough that I really don't give a fuck about 99.7% of the population. Um, and I think, like, even outside of training, like, Darwinism has its place and we've fucking stopped it. Like, there's a certain percentage of the population that should have died and we keep them from dying. <laughs> like, the world would be a better place if, you know, like, if you're dumb enough to listen to some of the shit, it's like, you need to die. You're that stupid. So, especially in this age, like, honestly, we should have less people doing dumb shit because all the information's at your fingertips if you're willing to look at it. But, uh, like, if I'm in a commercial gym, I'm just, I'm going to shake my head and turn away. Like, my, uh, my bandwidth is full. Uh, and all it's going to do is cause personal stress to me, and I don't need personal stress. So I wouldn't do it. If it was a family member and somebody I cared about, yes, I would. And uh, I wouldn't care if it hurt their feelings or whatever. Um, I don't. Feelings are overrated. Uh, our world is too based on feelings and not enough based on fact. Uh, so, but yeah, I wouldn't go into a commercial gym and tell anybody what to do. I If they come to me, I'll gladly help them. But uh, nah, it's not. It's, I don't have I don't have a dog in that fight, so. You have a question? Yeah. Let's do two more. Sorry. My question is, what is mostly the hardest lift in the Olympics? What is the hardest lift in the Olympics? If we're breaking this down just to strength, like lifting weights. Oh, God, Lord. I'm annoyed. <sighs> like, if we're talking Olympic weightlifting, it's definitely the snatch. Um, the hardest, like, event in the Olympics? Yeah. Oh, God. No, no, like, like lifting. Lifting, then it's snatch. Okay. By far the snatch. Okay. Out of the lifting, it would be the snatch is much more. Uh, that's where you'll see people bomb out. Generally, people don't bomb out of clean and jerk. It's like, like we talked about in the gym. It's one of those finicky lifts. I jokingly said, like, we're going non-PG here, Lonnie. Um, uh, the clean and jerk is like a man. You can fuck him. A snatch, you got to have sex. You got to make love to the snatch. You got to treat it nice and pet it and take it out to dinner and a movie. Like, you can knock on the door of a clean and jerk and just come in and I'm taking that. <laughs> and it's going to like it. Uh, the snatch is finicky if it's off by an eighth of an inch. Like, if you are... If your technique is 99%, you can fail that lift because you're not 100% on if it's a max level lift. Like at a, to hit a true max in a snatch, you, there's no room for error. Okay. So. I have another one. Okay. Um, so how do you make the decision of doing what you are good at versus what you like to do? I know that when you do something that you like and then just... The excitement of doing something new and being good at it becomes your new favorite. Mm -hmm. But what if you still like to do other things that you completely suck at it? <laughs> okay. Do you know what I'm asking? Like, how do you make that choice? Like, okay, even though I really like doing this, I'm way better at this and I want to succeed and uh, be greater in this than just keep sucking at that. 
Okay, so how do I make the? How do you make the choice of concentrating on something that you're good at instead of something that you just like? Yes. Honestly, I mean, a big part of training for me has to be fun. Like, if you don't, then honestly, number one in fucking life, I think too many people, and I've written about this too. Uh, too many people, I live by you shoulds instead of I wants. We've become, and everybody, like, there's this bad stigma around being selfish. Fuck you. I'm going to do the shit I like. And you find a way to do that. And that's okay. It's giving yourself permission to do the shit you really enjoy. Um, the good thing is, most of the time, the shit you really enjoy is the shit you're good at. Right. I mean, uh, like, I don't like running. So I'm not going to fucking do running a lot. And beautifully now, my doctor, like, the best thing that could happen is when he told me you'd never run again. I was like, fuck it, I love you. <laughs> I was ready to go down on him and like, oh, fuck. Like, I'm going to just give you a handy right here. Uh, you just told me the best news ever. Uh, so that's kind of a loaded question because normally the things you're good at are the things you like. Okay. Um, like, my guess is you've always been good at dancing. Yeah. yeah. So you like it. Um, now, other than that, let's say what you're... Some random person hates what they're good at. You, it's okay. Give yourself permission to do what you like. Okay. Uh, not enough people do that. I mean, like, even coming down to diet, like, I, I should eat spinach because they say it's really fucking good for me, but I hate it. Fuck you, I'm not eating spinach again. There's 700 other things to eat that you can get the same shit from. So why eat spinach? Like, I just don't eat chicken breast very often because they're fucking bullshit. You know, they're dry and nasty unless you cook it perfect, but then it's still just good. You know, um, yeah, I mean, I think too many people and even in training, like they live by, well, everybody says I should do this. So I should probably do that. And it's no. And the good thing is, is like, if you're actually doing something you love, like, like we talked about with my story, I, it took me a long time to find out what section of fitness I liked. And I found out that I really love powerlifting. And uh, there's something about me that just loves fucking going heavy. And I love that adrenaline I get. And, like, I'm in my element when I'm, when I'm going really heavy. And uh, so I gave myself permission to do that and stop doing the other things. But I make myself do some shit I don't like because I know it'll make me better at what I love. You know, do I like doing 20 rep squats? Fuck no. But I know that's going to make that other shit better. I know by doing that, I got to, you know, I got to, I got to eat, eat my meat. You can't have any pudding unless you eat your meat. Like I love fucking pudding, but I got to eat that meat first. You know, there's, you got to be adult about shit. Um, to a point. Um, if you really hate something, like I'm not going to be able to do it. Like if somebody, and I'll ask like clients, like, why why don't you want to do that? Because I don't like it. Well, I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck what you don't like. It's going to make you better. But if they really fucking hate it, like I despise, I, I'm going to fucking shoot you if you make me do that shit. All right, well, I'll find something else for you to do. <laughs> you know, there's not, I can't think of an exercise, like even like I love squatting and deadlifting and pressing. But if somebody literally fucking hates it with a passion, I have 700 other exercises we can do that I can work the same muscle groups and they won't fucking hate it. Especially now if you're a powerlifter and you hate squats, eat a dick, dude. You got to squat. <laughs> you know, there's nothing you can do about it. 
you know. So, I mean, there's some shit. Sometimes you just got to eat the frog. But, uh, and that's like I had a conversation. Like I was, I made it to A class in Highland Games with the goal of going pro. At the same time, I'm knocking on the door to 800-pound deadlift. And I call up Dan John, and I'm having a conversation with him about it, and blah, blah, blah. He's like, <sighs> he just broke it down. Let's seek advice outside of yourself. He broke it down for me. He's like, okay, Phil, there's how many bad Highland Games pros are there? A lot. How many people at this point in the world, which has been years ago, how many people have pulled an 800-pound beltless deadlift? None. Which do you think you need to fucking do? Okay, Dan, I understand. I need to just do that because it's really what I loved. The other one's fun, and that's at the point, and I have this tendency, and I know it in myself. When I take shit on, I take it on. So basically, I was really, I was training fucking hard at powerlifting and fucking hard at, at, at Highland Games and generally doing two things uh, at a really high level don't mesh well. You know, like I talk about on the show, it's, you know, the man who chases two rabbits goes home hungry. Yeah. I was chasing two rabbits. And even though they're, the sports kind of feed each other, and like the reason I did okay in Highland Games was because I was a powerlifter and I was strong, to get great at it, I would need to let go of the powerlifting and spend all my time working technique. And I wasn't willing to do that because I'm trying to get this. So, so I had to drop one, and I still do Highland Games, but it's 100% purely for fun. Like the last Island Games I did, I went out and broke a field record. I had not thrown in three years. I had not, I did not practice one rep before I went to that competition. Like it was so bad that I started off, we were doing sheaf is what I broke field record in. And you start wherever you want in Highland Games. So generally you start a little closer to your max ability because once you're in, you kind of take every weight. Uh, you take every height. So sheaf is where you're throwing a, a hay bale over for height. And I was like, fuck, I don't know. I'm going to start at 12 feet. And this other dude's like, yeah, well, I'm starting at 28 feet because I'm going to break the field record today. I was like, I will do you. And I started at 12 feet, and I hit fucking every foot all the way up to 36. You know, and he was fucking pissed. But, I mean, I, I also needed those reps because I hadn't done it in three years. So it helped me to get all that warm-up. And coming from a powerlifting background, throwing a 28-pound sack ain't shit. You know, I could sit out there and fucking chuck hay all day because I'm deadlifting 700 pounds. But anyways, I mean, going to the conversation, it's just like uh, – If if what you love, if you really love it, you won't mind giving up the other, some other shit you like to be great at what you love. And that's how you'll really know if you love it. Like, you'll take the negatives. Like, I don't mind. Like, I... The chances that I'm pretty much a fucking cripple when I'm 60 are real fucking high. And I've accepted that. Because I'm right now I'm living and I'm doing what I love. And most people won't allow themselves to do that. You know? You know, most people won't allow themselves to, they're too scared to do what I did, which was I packed literally a duffel bag with like three shirts, two pairs of shorts and a pair of shoes. And I left for Thailand for a year and that's all I had. And then I traveled all over kind of lived out of my truck for 10 years, driving from coach to coach to coach. And it's scary as shit. But most of the times in this world, the scary shit is the shit you should do. The shit that scares you the fucking most is that's the shit you should do. Because that's what you're going to get the most enjoyment out of and the most passion in life. Most people don't live life. They they kind of just do what they think they should. You know, like you're only here so fucking long. And none of us know if reincarnation real. I don't fucking know. I'm not going to know until I die. So right now I'm going to live this shit and I'll pay for that penance later, man. 
Like if heaven's real, God will be mad at me for some things, but hey, I think he'll forgive me because I've generally been a good person. <laughs> did I fuck up? Fuck yes, I did. You know, I've done dumb shit, but you know, so. we're going to call it there because it's been about an hour. Um, thank you guys. And I hope somebody gets something out of this and I'm sorry I had a potty mouth. Not really. So. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.